0: How can we use knowledge of how radiation interacts with materials to improve the way that we store nuclear waste? Dr. Morlick Patel uses innovative experimental techniques to understand the damage that radiation does to materials and to design compounds better at withstanding this. In this episode, we discuss the promising radiation-stable materials he is exploring in the School of Engineering, his incredible experience of working at the Los Alamos National Laboratory in the US, and why he thinks nuclear power will remain a strong contender in today's energy mix. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you do, don't forget to share and subscribe to the Liverpool Scientific wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Liverpool Scientific. Today I'm delighted to welcome Dr Morlick Patel onto the show, Senior Lecturer of Nuclear Materials Science in the Department of Mechanical Materials and Aerospace Engineering here at the University of Liverpool. Morlick, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: My pleasure, thank you for inviting me.
0: So here at Liverpool, your research interest lies in looking at materials for nuclear and renewable energy. Can you tell us a bit more about what specific questions you're trying to address with this work and why it's important?
1: So, I mean, energy crisis, as we all know, is, is one of the biggest crises, uh, other than Corona that we already have, uh, right? So, <laughs> uh, and, and we are all, always in a state of growth. So, and growth requires energy. And uh, in, in, in today's scenario, where we also have climate change, right, we have a massive global warming, most of these energy technologies you want are uh, that, that don't produce CO2. So that's why uh, some of the work we do in my in the areas of research that I'm interested in is uh, nuclear energy and renewable energy, because uh, nuclear is, uh, I think, it's about 10% of electricity in, in the world. And uh, it's it's responsible for at least thirty percent of low carbon em- electricity, almost no greenhouse emissions. Mm-hmm. So that's one one reason. The other one is renewable energy, which is focused geared towards more towards generation of hydrogen, but from low cost uh, catalysts than what we have or, or uh, any other means of uh, producing hydrogen, because hydrogen can be produced by lots of different methods. The the, the one that we are trying to focus on is uh, through electrolysis. Or through uh, photocatalysis.
0: So, what projects are you looking at at the moment in these two areas?
1: So, in uh, nuclear, where I focus on is uh, is basically what you would call the reactor cycle, and also at the the back end, meaning when it when it uh, is nuclear waste. So, uh, I try to look at let's say oxides and look at their crystal structure. So, what I tend to do is how atoms are basically arranged. Uh, in, uh, in different materials, but over the time, one of the things that is existing in a nuclear reactor or when you have nuclear waste and it is going to be disposed uh, underground for thousands of years, it is going to see a lot of radiation because everything in a nuclear reactor is radiation. So the other area that I specifically focus on is how does this radiation damage materials because it does it does damage materials it can if you, if you take a rod of let's say 10 centimeters you put it in a nuclear reactor it will uh, elongate itself uh, to about 10.2 centimeters or so and uh, likewise uh, if you for example take a diamond ring and this is a joke we play in nuclear is, uh, is, is I never give my wife a diamond ring for a reason is you put that diamond ring in a reactor it will turn to graphite but if you put a yttrium stabilized zirconia ring, it will be almost extremely radiation stable. It will remain in its own crystal structure and hence maintain its physical properties. So yeah, I work to look at how radiation affects materials basically and how it modifies them in nuclear reactor.
0: Right, okay. And so obviously these materials that are in the reactor are gonna be bombarded with lots of radiation. Uh, So they need to be radiation stable. So what sort of desirable properties do these materials have?
1: Yeah, so we, we would like to have, uh, have desirable properties uh, uh, in a nuclear reactor or even, even in a nuclear waste. So, what happens at the back end is if you, you, your fuel comes out of the reactor after operation, it sits in these cooling ponds for nearly 30 years. And then uh, you, you separate out the unwanted species, which is deemed as nuclear waste. And uh, currently, people immobilize this or mix it with glass. And then the plan is to, to put them underground, uh, deeper under, under, in a geological site. I think only Finland has such a site yet and no other country does right now. Uh, and so the idea uh, is that, but then uh, the radiation will, let's say, displace atoms. And we know when atoms are displaced, the physical properties change. So you develop swelling, you develop cracks and, and so on and so forth. So uh, you want to predict how it'll do in what materials so that we can design better materials now that can then serve the purpose for ten thousand years.
0: Okay, so what material or what candidate at the moment have you got that is showing it's really promising at withstanding this radiation damage?
1: So, so I, I, I'm a ceramist, and so I will probably be biased on on this this end. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: uh, so, one of the most uh, radiation stable materials is yttrium stabilized zirconia. It is a cubic material, meaning uh, that that uh, all, all the atoms are sort of closely packed in it, and, uh, and it never amorphizes, it basically never dis- the atoms never disorder. They, they move around when radiation hits, but it doesn't collapse, the whole crystal structure doesn't collapse, uh, and hence uh, it maintains its properties.
0: Okay, so you mentioned looking at the properties, uh, the structural and the thermal properties, for example, of these materials. So what experimental techniques do you use to do that?
1: That's a very good question because, uh, so like I said, uh, all of this damage, let's call this as damage, right, is accumulated in in the the case of nuclear waste over thousands of years. And uh, in the nuclear reactor, that damage, same damage is accumulated in, let's say, 20, 30 years, right, or even a year long. Mm -hmm. And you cannot wait to to sort of uh, that length of time to understand how things are happening, right, how the damage is accumulated. And so what we do is we use something called as accelerated techniques. The other reason why we cannot do, in, in, in the way I was talking earlier, is because the materials come out to be extremely radioactive. right? And you cannot handle them in, in, a, in a lab like ours. So we don't handle radioactive mm-hmm. materials in my lab, at least. And so you're limited by the characterization techniques you can apply then, which means you have to invent new methods to, to do that. And one of the methods that we use, which is used by a lot, uh, is use accelerators. So accelerators were used by nuclear physicists uh, quite some time ago, and they were invented to, 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 to understand nuclear physics. But then over the years, uh, accelerators are used uh, to, to understand radiation damage. So what you take is, you, you take a highly energetic beam that comes out of an accelerator. Uh, it is radiation, but its properties are such that it will mimic the radiation species that you have either in a nuclear waste or in a reactor an example of that would be uh, let's say in nuclear waste uh, you have a plutonium 239 that emits an alpha particle an alpha particle of certain energy so you we we go to the accelerator and you can get a helium beam of that much energy and so now you you can take that material outside right and irradiate it with a certain type of species that will mimic the radiation damage that will happen in these waste or reactor conditions. So we do that, then you 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 have a material which has a damage zone. You take that material, you want to study the atomic structure. So we do we use techniques something like x-ray diffraction and transmission mm-hmm. electron microscopy which is basically looking at um, at an atomic level how things have changed.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because when you talk about accelerators i can't help but think of things like particle physics and places like cern but obviously you're working with such challenging materials that y- you need to kind of adapt the way that you'd go about understanding how they work in the experimental techniques that you're using so that's absolutely fascinating so you mentioned studying physics so now let's take a look back at your career to see how you ended up where you are today um you first did a bachelor's in physics at the university of mumbai in india before going on to complete a master's also in mumbai so what made you decide to study physics had you always been interested in physics growing up
1: yes i was always interested in studying science not necessarily physics i i did like biology up to a certain level and mm-hmm. then, uh, then I think physics was the natural interest that I chose. But it wasn't until my masters that I really enjoyed sort of studying physics as a, as without any stress, for example. And uh, and, and the simple reason was because I think uh, during the masters, I did start doing projects at different institutes around Bombay. So one mm-hmm. was an institute in uh, called, called Samir, which is uh, which is sort of an optoelectronics. Uh, Institute uh, uh, behind uh, the Indian Institute of Technology in Bombay, and so while during those those projects, I think I really connected the, the solid state physics sort of concepts to to to, to reality because uh, I love ex- I love to do experiments. I, I'm not a the- theoretical uh, researcher. I, I like to do experiments, and and so when those things started getting mm-hmm. connected, I think I appreciated what I what I was trying to learn.
0: And so, these projects were they just focused on material science, or was there sort of elements of nuclear physics as well? Sort of, when when did you become interested in nuclear physics?
1: I was not directly interested in materials per se, but it just tended to happen that way. One of the courses we took was uh, to making semiconductor sort of lasers, right? Semiconductor lasers, which are nothing else but uh, quantum wells. You sandwich a higher band gap semiconductor with a lower band gap semiconductor, and and I. I was excited about it. But but what happened was uh, my last thing that I did uh, at the University of Mumbai was uh, to do a project. Uh, we had a small implanter. So it's a small accelerator of 30 kilovolts. And then I tried to do some, my, my first project, my first research paper actually came out from there, where I tried to look at copper nanoparticles uh, uh, in, in glass. And I think then I was just overhearing uh, my, my research colleagues talking about you know, radiation damage in nuclear waste and other things and i just picked up that slowly slowly never thought that i would still do phd in, in in that topic that came a, that came in in a totally different way to me
0: yeah and so this sort of led you on into your phd which you just mentioned in 2009 you went on to study for a phd in physics at the barber atomic research center in india studying ion beam induced modifications in pyroclaws, thorium dioxide and indian nuclear waste classes so can you, for people who are not in this kind of sphere of physics, could you talk a bit more about what is special about these materials and what your PhD was looking at?
1: So in this project, it, 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 like I said, I had to wait about two and a half, two years roughly, to arrive at that topic of of, of research. Roughly, I didn't join my PhD to do research in nuclear materials. To be honest, uh, I joined uh, to to work on optics uh, to 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 develop. Semiconductors, which uh, can can also can also be used as memory devices, which are called as spintronic materials, and a lot of folks in physics still study them. Uh, so I wanted to actually use implanter to implant certain magnetic species into a wide band gap semiconductor and make it magnetic at the same time as having the capacity to to, to store memory, something like that. It didn't happen that way, uh, and didn't work out because the materials didn't arrive on time, so on. So. And I was my, uh, and, and then again, uh, the PhD advisors, you know, they, they are very nice, but then the, their expertise is different than, than what you expect it to be. So you keep shifting. And then I think it just happened as a coincidence that I was standing outside a chemist's door in BARC, in, in which is Papa Atomic Research Center. And I overheard them talking about an accelerator center where I had already done my experiments during my master's. And, and started discussing with him. And, and that's how I got into studying those uh, materials that you, you just talked about. So, one is a pyroplore, which is a candidate for immobilizing nuclear waste because, simply because it can, a lot of species can make this material as their, their, their host material. Uh, and that's why it's easy to manufacture and it has excellent radiation, fish, radiation tolerant you know, qualities and stuff like that. So, that, that's one. The other one was thorium dioxide. Thorium dioxide is uh, is an alternative to uh, uranium fuels, right? But thorium can't be used as a fuel by itself. U two thirty five, we all know, is is the one that fissions, right? Mm-hmm. It breaks apart and you generate energy. So it's called as a fissile isotope. But, but thorium two thirty two is a fertile isotope, which means that you can you have to convert it to a, to to uranium two thirty three. And then the uranium two thirty three can be used in nuclear reactors. And India, uh, like some other countries, uh, has has is, I think it's in the top five or the top three most abundant uh, resources of, of, of thorium. So hence the new nu- the nuclear energy program in India is geared towards using thorium for generating energy. Uh, and that's and hence looking at radiation effects in thorium dioxide came naturally to me from there. Uh, the last one was uh, nuclear waste glasses. So My office was very next to a waste management division of, of that national lab. And uh, it just turned out that they had discovered new glasses that can take uh, the waste stream that comes out of uh, nuclear uh, civilian nuclear reactors in, in India. And they didn't know how radiation tolerant they were uh, in the first 30 years of uh, storing waste, let's say. So, so the first 30 years, we have isotopes like cesium and strontium that, that spit out uh, electrons, which is beta decays. And, and it's important to understand that. So that's became my third part of the study, which is to look at radiation effects, especially effects of uh, betas or electrons, high energy to 2 million electron volt uh, electron, uh, electrons in glasses that are currently used for, uh, for sort of immobilizing waste in India.
0: So you were looking at how these ion beams were changing the materials. Which material did you find was, was the best? What were the results from, from looking at these different materials?
1: So I'll, I'll go again in the same sequence, uh, Pyroclors. Now without doing experiments, you can cherry pick a pyroclor, saying, okay, if I pick this one because it has this uh, radius of uh, A and B, uh, it, it will be more radiation tolerant. So you can design now right in in that family of material in pyrochlore you can cherry pick when it would different depending on what application you want to use them for so in thorium dioxide the idea was to see damage in all different with all different types of ions uh, because uh, it's hardly been done so i so I used uh, ions that will cause damage uh, by neutrons ions that will cause damage by by fission fragments and ions that will cause damage by by very 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 uh, low energy ions and so so these and so we saw that the fission fragment type of ions cause a color change. White colored pellets of thorium dioxide become indigo blue colored. That was interesting. So we figured Mm -hmm. why why that happened and has to... So color change is, we call color center, right? Defects in materials are interesting. And and this is something I think we all should learn as humans is defects are are something sometimes interesting uh, because because that's what gives uh, materials interesting properties. Pure materials aren't very useful I mean those who are in semiconductor physics know this very well you don't use a pure silicon for making chips you dope them you make them impure and then in, in the, the last one is very interesting because glass right so the, the question is glass is already a disordered material atoms are not in a, in order right so what would be a defect in glass right uh, and we haven't yet figured that out well uh, when you do when you put it too much of electron beam, in, in these glasses, they also uh, generate certain, certain defects that may or may not sort of lead to more corrosion because what you want in, in glass is it will go in a geological site, right? An underground site for thousands of years, it will have contact with, with water. And so you don't want water to leach this glass. Otherwise what will happen is all your radioactive nucleides that are actually immobilized or, or stopped in the glass matrix will then uh, be transmitted to biosphere, right? I mean, they will be transmitted to the environment and 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 that's not good, that's not what you want. Mm -hmm. And radiation enhances certain corrosion processes. And so so that was the other bit. We didn't do the corrosion studies, but we, we looked at what type of defects electron beam creates.
0: And so, after this work, you went to the Los Alamos National Laboratory in the USA, obviously infamous of being the location of the World War II Manhattan Project, and here you were a postdoctoral research associate looking at several different research questions. So firstly, could you just tell us a bit more about the work that you were doing here?
1: One of the work I, I did over there was, um, like I said, that the last bit was to to to, to understand how you can come up with the uh, coatings that will reduce the oxidation of uh, these zirconium metal and that was a massive project it continued uh, throughout uh, my term even in the next job which is i uh, went to university of tennessee but uh, the other things that i did to, to look at these pyrochlores you know and when you actually put a, a radioactive species in these pyroclors, uh, how does the structure change and looking at that with different tools and one of the tools that i uniquely used uh, Sort of uh, in Los Alamos was neutrons actually. So you can use neutrons as a, as a probe to to understand how structural, uh, how atomic structure changes. What neutrons do, in contrast to what X rays cannot, is neutrons uh, are neutral particles. So so they they can they can be scattered by those elements like oxygen, and so they're sensitive to oxygen locations in 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 your material. And so you can solve the structure really really well the other one that i uh, did was these coatings so it was uh, to to, de- to develop ceramic coatings and, and all of these uh, basically were looking at can we develop a coating that will reduce the oxygen in these zirconium claddings to the point that uh, you can that emergency emergency facilities or emergency personnel can can get just even half an hour of time in case of these these accidents you know mm-hmm. because corrosion is going to happen and, and things are going to fall apart. But if we had uh, a bit more time to act, then that could save more lives. Actually, there was also a whole team of British researchers uh, led by Carl Whittle.
0: Oh, he's at Liverpool, isn't he?
1: Yeah, he's a colleague of mine in Liverpool.
0: Oh, wow, fantastic. So, you know, did knowing him influence your career choices when you did decide to move to Liverpool?
1: It, it did. It did in a certain way because I I, I knew him
0: and as well um cuz i'm very interested what was it actually like to work at los alamos cuz obviously it's a very famous institution
1: it's 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 superb actually that i mean uh, as a postdoctoral researcher you have so many facilities uh, coming from india i think so just as an example i mean so i used to make my samples by grinding in a mortar and a pestle so take a mortar and a pestle take a few grams of powder and mix them. That's how we made these pyroclores. When I came to Los Alamos, I saw something called a ball mill for the first time in my life, which is basically you put this powder in a a small container, put it in this machine, and this machine shakes it for you forever. Uh, And and you get a nice, amazing powder out of it, and you basically sinter. So so your work is basically reduced. But that's just a small example. The other bit was, I mean, the... the, um, the amazing thing was the, the researchers over there, my mentor over there, Kurt Sikafos was absolutely amazing in terms of how you, know, you approach a problem, uh, uh, how you look at a problem, uh, how much deep you want to look into it. And then the teaching aspects. How do you teach a certain problem to, to new researchers or new students? I can say he's influenced my teaching. I mean, it's, it's a great place to work.
0: And then from here, you stayed in the U.S. and you went on to look at helium accumulation in Pyroclaws as a research assistant professor in the Department of Material Science and Engineering at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. So how, was this, how did you find this experience?
1: So it wasn't planned to go to Tennessee. I wanted to become a staff member in Los Alamos. But but one thing that I, I sort of uh, it's difficult is is to generate funds because unlike in, in the in the in the UK in US uh, when you are when you go from a postdoctoral staff you have to sort of uh, generate your own revenue in, in, in a way from projects and other things and if you, if you cannot generate a certain amount of revenue from from your to pay yourself basically you, you it's difficult to sustain so I tried to get a staff uh, sort of position happen. Uh, and uh, but my my at the same time, my mentor, Kurt Sigafiss, he moved as a department head of materials science and engineering at the University of Tennessee. And, and, and sort of, he, he asked me if I could join him. Uh, and then it subsequently I did uh, join. So that's how my, my transfer from Los Alamos to Tennessee happened. It was because of Kurt. But I reached there, it was was totally different in terms of climate. It was very moist. I don't know if you know Tennessee well, but Los Alamos is something like 7,000 feet above sea level. It's a beautiful place to live live in. Only 20,000 people, just two roads, in, two, two roads. one going in and one going out. And, uh, yeah, so th- that's the other part I loved about Los Alamos. And Tennessee is exactly opposite. Tennessee is very, very green.
0: So can you tell us a bit more about the work you were doing while you were at Tennessee?
1: So... Uh, when I joined Tennessee, I started working on a, a project uh, funded by uh, Nuclear Energy University's program called NEUP. It's funded by the Department of Energy. And I started working on, um, so if you take py- if you wanted to use pyrochlores in order to store your nuclear waste for you know, millions of years, then one thing that is going to happen is it will accumulate helium. And so the question was, what will helium do in pyrochlore if it's accumulated to the level equivalent to uh, storage of uh, let's say 10,000 years and so I started working on the project and then I got introduced to a PhD student and and then uh, she started working with me and uh, I sort of uh, started mentoring her that was my first mentoring uh, experience uh, with with the student Caitlin Taylor and then we started working together and and she basically did uh, two papers which is to look at how helium accumulates and if it accumulates, what stresses it will bring about in in, in pyroclores. The other important sort of, if somebody asked me what what was the other contribution while I was in Tennessee, I would say it was to sort of uh, develop a user facility for X-ray diffraction at the University of Tennessee. So when I went to the department, there was uh, about uh, uh, one or two diffractometers uh, in the material science engineering department. And uh, I I wanted to sort of... uh, get more of them in terms of their working because some of them were not working well. And so I, I ended up uh, writing a proposal, a research proposal, an infrastructure proposal to, to, to get these instruments and I got lucky because I had uh, great support from, from different researchers internal to University of Tennessee who would co-fund these things. So then we, we bought two diffractometers, and now it's in a, it's in a thousand square foot facility uh, in an in a institute, uh, which belongs to the University of Tennessee. And it's a user facility, which is used by probably 200, 300 researchers now. Uh, it's a core facility. And I ran that facility for about uh, two years, roughly.
0: That's absolutely fantastic. And I guess as well as kind of all the skills that you gained, you know, in terms of academic skills like grant writing and um, writing these research proposals, it must be really nice to have a sort of lasting legacy um, from your time at Tennessee.
1: It's absolutely a nice feeling. I I I will, I will say that. But then I miss them now
0: yeah and from here you went on to join the university of liverpool um you mentioned earlier that you had some links with carl whittle were there any other reasons that you decided to join the university of liverpool
1: the primary reason was the following is is that i was a research faculty i wasn't a, a tenured or a tenure track faculty in, in at the university of tennessee which meant that my salary uh, very nice one i should say came from a uh, different projects and so uh I, and to the point that you can get such projects, you, you can support yourself. And beyond that, you cannot, uh, that's one reason. So, so I wanted a, a stable sort of position. The, the other reason was uh, I think I, I, I wanted always wanted to teach. So I, I, lo- I, I love teaching material science and, and I, I sort of uh, as a research faculty I was given a few opportunities to teach, but but then I wanted to sort of do my own, you know, get my own modules, do teach teach something uh, that I would love to teach, uh, which is ceramics and ceramics processing and materials in general. So that's the second reason.
0: Yeah, and the rest is history. Um. So I guess, what do you think the future for nuclear power in the energy mix is?
1: Uh, this might be a bit biased, because obviously I work in this, this area, but, <laughs> but, 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 but there is a good enough justification, uh, how do you say, a justification for it. I mean, look at, so, so, so I, I don't agree that you should, one should focus on one technology. So I, I would disagree if somebody says we should use only nuclear uh, in the energy mix. I, 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 my, my opinion is that we should use all of the different renewable energy technologies, uh, uh, to the capacity that they can produce uh, uh, but also increase the, the the share of nuclear for a simple reason is is that it's uh, it's i mean nuclear reactors are, are quite safe now and people are trying to go towards something called as small modular reactors which are uh, reactors that, that that can be sort of assembled on site and and, and sort of maintained the other reason one one of the other reasons is is if you look at the capacity factor of wind versus solar versus nuclear. And and for those who don't know what a capacity factor is, a simple example is if you have a a 5-megawatt wind turbine, right? a wind turbine made to produce maximum 5-megawatt, but on an average, it it, it only produces 2 megawatts because sometimes the wind blows, sometimes it doesn't. So then the capacity factor is basically you you divide 2 by 5, so you have a 40% capacity factor, Mm -hmm. which means you're only producing 40% Forty percent capacity of its original capacity. So that's so. So wind wind falls into roughly twenty-five percent of has a capacity factor of twenty-five percent. Solar twenty percent, and then nuclear has a ninety percent capacity factor. If you want to to have a massive wind farm, you probably require roughly about five thousand square kilometers to to generate an X amount of uh, let's say of X megawatt of energy. But you would require 400 square kilometers for a, for a solar farm. Uh, a wind farm would have 5,000 square kilometers, but a nuclear reactor requires two square kilometers. That's the other bit. And then one, one, a, a kilogram roughly of, of, of let's say, uranium-235 would produce energy that is equivalent to 2.7 million kilograms of something coal equivalent of energy. So why not you know, work towards it?
0: And I guess as a final question, um, what do you think the future direction for your research here at Liverpool is?
1: The, the future direction is, uh, one is I've been using radiation to destroy materials, but the, the plan is to, to find out ways to use radiation as a tool to modify materials. That's one thing. And, and it's already been used in industry. Like, for example, if, you, if you've seen colored diamonds, artificial colored diamonds, they're actually made by irradiating diamonds. You take clear white diamonds or colorless diamonds, not white, uh, and you, you can irradiate them and create point effects. And then you those become colored, right? Because you change the band gap. And it's been used. So I would like to use, uh, sort of go in that direction. Keep working on a different, uh, sort of look into the new fuel materials, uh, how does radiation affects in, you know, in new nuclear fuels that I haven't been sort of used in the reactors can commonly, these are called gen four, generation four nuclear reactors, and it's, it's in the research stage. And then through a postdoc of mine from a Commonwealth fellowship, I've, uh, I've got into the field of looking into generating hydrogen from low cost catalyst. So I tried to learn, uh, pick up on that, that end. And then eventually, if possible, try to marry nuclear and hydrogen at some point of the time, because you can actually generate, people do generate hydrogen from the waste heat coming out of nuclear reactors. So, so look into materials, if such things are done, what are the material issues of generating hydrogen from the waste heat and nuclear. So those are the roughly, broadly speaking, those, those are other areas that I would sort of move ahead in the future.
0: Well, Dr. Moolik Patel, it's been fascinating to talk to you today. The research that you're doing is absolutely incredible. And I'm very excited to see where your research goes in the future. Um, so thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your Liverpool scientific.
1: Thank you. Thank you a lot. I mean, thanks for inviting me. It was, was really nice uh, talking to you.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Liverpool Scientific. Follow at Live Scientific on Instagram and Twitter to find out who I'm going to be talking to next and when the next episode is going to be released.